Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture is 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. It's titled, God's Promise to David. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them any more as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Thank you, Sue. Once again, good morning. Uh, for anyone uh, who has not been living under a rock in recent times, uh, everybody knows two things right now. Everybody knows two things right now. The first is that the Chicago Cubs won the World Series for the first time in 108 years. And the second one is that this coming Tuesday, whew, all right, this is going to be a rough one. I'm just getting started. This Tuesday, we elect the 45th president of the United States. How, as Christians, ought we approach this upcoming election? How, as Christians, ought we to have been approaching 
this upcoming election in previous weeks and previous months? And how, as Christians, ought we to approach after the election on Tuesday? Today we are continuing in our series called The Story. And the overarching, or the central, excuse me, the central point of this entire series is that if you want to understand any passage in the Bible, If you want to understand any passage in the Bible, you've got to set it within the overarching narrative of the Bible, that the Bible is primarily a story. The Bible is not primarily a a book of timeless wisdom. Um, It's not a a book that is primarily a book of instructions for life, Uh, though it, it contains all of the instructions for life and all of the timeless wisdom that you could ever need, but in order to access that, in any passage, we need to see how that passage fits into the overarching narrative of the Bible. And and, and as we come to this passage, we're going to discover that that's very much true with this passage as well. Let me sort of set the stage a little bit here. Let's kind of, kind of, let me catch you up to speed on where we are. We've been going through the story. We've been going through this overarching narrative, and basically, as the story goes, it begins with creation. God created everything, and God created it good, and God created it, uh, created humanity to come and participate with him in helping to, to, to enable the beauty and goodness of this world to flourish. He actually brings us alongside him to take the good the goodness of the creation that he created and said, I want you to come along and cultivate it. And cultivate with me and bring even greater goodness and beauty uh, to creation. But, of course, what happens right at the beginning there? We turn away from God. Humanity turns away from God and we decide, no, you know, we don't really want want to work with you and and seek to cultivate uh, beauty, we want to we go our own way. We want to do our, our own thing. We want to make this about ourselves. So the, the first, well, basically chapters uh, from chapter 3 on in Genesis to 11 are what I like to call the spiraling decadence of humanity. And then after these, these, these chapters where we see the, this unfolding sort of chaos, then we discover what is at the heart of God. And that is that he is a God who pursues us. He is a God who seeks us out. And he is a God who desires to redeem what has fallen. So we see in chapter 12 of Genesis that he unleashes this plan. And this plan is he calls out a people. He calls out a people. He calls out Abraham. And he says to Abraham, he says, says, through you and through your people, I'm going to bring renewal and restoration to all of creation. And so then, then the story then begins to focus in on Abraham and his line, and, and it passes on to Isaac and then to Jacob, who is Israel. And then, and then we begin to see the development of the people of Israel, God's people, who are ultimately to be used to bring renewal and restoration to all things. Then uh, there's a little bit of a hitch, uh, about a 400-year hitch, where the Israelites are in in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And so, of course, we read about how God raises up Moses, and Moses comes and, and 
God uses him to rescue the rescuers, I like to say. Rescue the rescuers because, because God's people are here to, to rescue and bring renewal to all things. So he rescues the rescuers and, and brings them out. And then, of course, this is where uh, God gives them the Ten Commandments. And we saw, we looked at that, we saw that that is God's blueprint for beautiful community. God's blueprint for beautiful community. And we, we saw how that sort of is unpacked. And, and, and then we saw last week God... God brings them to the promised land, this land that he had promised Abraham 400 years before that he would lead his people into. We saw that in Joshua. We saw where where the Israelites come into the land of Palestine, and that's really what the book of Joshua is essentially all about. Then, if we went on, after that is the book of Judges, and the book of Judges just sort of chronicles the first couple hundred years of the people of Israel living in in Palestine. And if we looked at, at that, we might come back to that sometime uh, later on in life, we'll come back and look at the book of Judges. But, but it actually just really, I think, one of the central messages of, of Judges is that it's about how the people of God just keep forgetting him. They just keep forgetting him. And then we come to First and Second Samuel. And in First and Second Samuel, what emerges here is the, the Davidic monarchy, the Israelite monarchy. And, and that's really kind of what First and Second Samuel are designed to do, is to set up the development of this kingdom in Israel. And so what we see here is, is really God making his promise to David. Right? David is anointed as king of the people of Israel. And here we see God making these promises to David, anointing him as king. Now, what are we to pull from this passage? How do we take this passage and allow it to apply to our own lives today? Uh, okay, we could look for some timeless principles, some timeless truths, and, and, and some of this will work. I think some things sort of emerge here. So, so for example, we could highlight the, the fact that we see in this passage that God is faithful. God is faithful, and, and, and so um, uh, God is faithful. We, we see this even just in setting it in the immediate context. We saw that, that God is faithful to them even when they keep turning away, and judges, they keep kind of turning away from him. And, God remains faithful, so maybe that's a principle we can emerge from this, is about the faithfulness of God. Certainly, that's true. We might also see in here uh, uh, that that God protects his people from their enemies. God protects his his people from their their enemies. And, and, well, that's that's a great principle as well. God protects his people from their enemies. Uh, We also see in here that that God raises up uh, leaders. God raises up great leaders, and, and so I don't know. Maybe we could align from this an idea that, that God raises up great leaders of nations, and he raises them up, and, and that's a timeless principle which we could just hold on to. And I think as we hear that, we kind of resonate with that, with, an, with these kind of timeless principles, that this, this sort of makes sense, but it doesn't seem to quite match, does it? There's a few things that seem to be missing. And, of course, the reason why is because we're not supposed to just look for these timeless principles. You see, we need to take this passage and set it within the overarching narrative of Scripture. And when we do that, we see a very profound, a number of profound things that emerge when we set this within the context of the overarching narrative and particularly within the context of the climax of that narrative. And of course, what is the climax of that narrative? The climax of that narrative is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. 
what is it that we discover? When we set this within the, the climax of this overarching narrative of Scripture, what is a principle that we can uh, emerges for us today? And what is the principle that emerges when we go to vote on Tuesday? And here's what I think comes off this page for us. When we go in to vote on Tuesday, one of the things that we need to remember is that our ultimate leader is already in office. When we go in to vote, we need to understand that our ultimate leader is already in office. So let's see what happens here. So basically, God, let's set this in the context of this overarching narrative and the climax. So God, uh, God makes these promises to David, says his kingdom will endure forever. And, and, and so then his kingdom, it goes well at first, looks, looks good for a little while. His Solomon, the, the kingdom expands, right? But but then things, they start to kind of break apart, and we see conflict within the kingdom, and, and pressures from the outside start to chip away um, at the kingdom that he had given to David. And, 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 and slowly, over 500 years, there are some ups and downs. It just continues to kind of decay and break apart. And then finally, after 500 years, it, is, it completely disappears. But throughout this time, you see, the prophets of Israel, they, they know this promise. They remember this promise that God had given to David, that his kingdom would endure forever. And so they started to think, they started to look ahead, they started to prophesy about this time when God would raise up the Messiah, when God would raise up this, this king who would, would come and would, would usher in the kingdom of God. And, of course, the very heart of Christianity is that those promises, that promise was fulfilled in Jesus. So we, we go to Luke chapter 1, and this, this young girl, Mary, has a, an angel, comes to her, and, and listen to what the angel says. Tells her that she's going to have a child. Gabriel says this about this child. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is the fulfillment of this, of this promise. And so this, this, this comes, and then we might say that we come to the baptism of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus, we might say, is election day. That's the day when, when Jesus is elected as the as the Messiah, where, where the Father elects him, right? The Father elects him and, and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Uh, actually, he's really just confirming what he had. He, actually, God took advantage of early voting uh, and actually voted Jesus in from the beginning of time as the Messiah. But, but here at the baptism, this becomes, this is revealed that he is electing him. He is chosen. This is sort of election day. And then actually, you might say that the entire earthly ministry of Jesus uh, it sort of functions like the transitional period uh, in American politics where someone gets elected in November and then there's that transition period before they are inaugurated in January. And it's, it's a transition and it's kind of awkward. I, I had a friend who, who worked in the White House uh, under George W. And uh, he, he told me that actually when, when, 
when the Bush administration came in, and there was this transition between the Clinton administration and the, and the Bush administration, and, and the Clinton folks uh, played a little joke on the Bushies, and they removed all of the W's from the keyboards uh, on the, the computers at the White House. Anyway, so it's this sort of awkward transition, and really, that's kind of what Jesus' whole earthly ministry is like. It's like this weird, awkward transition between the old guard and the new guard, and, and he's been elected, but he's, he's not inaugurated. And then when is the inauguration? It's Easter. Easter is the celebration of the inauguration of our King. Easter is the inauguration of the King of Kings. And we find actually in Philippians, the Apostle Paul uh, sort of uh, discusses what does this mean? What is, what is going on here with, with Jesus' death and resurrection? And just listen to what it says here. It says, of Jesus, he being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You see, friends, when we go in to vote on Tuesday, we need to remember is that our ultimate leader is already in office. That whatever the name is of our next president, Jesus' name is above that name. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, uh, Pilate, when the Roman procurator is talking to Jesus and And he says to Jesus, he says, you know, don't you know I have the power to either let you go or to kill you? And and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, you know what? The only reason you have this power is because God the Father has given you that power, right? And his message is, and that God the Father is about to raise me from the dead and elevate my name above all names. So you see, when we go in on Tuesday, what we need to remember is that our ultimate leader, is already in office. Now, what does that mean? What, what are the practical implications of that? And I think it's really very simple. I think what emerges from this is because our ultimate leader is already in office, here's how Christians ought to approach this upcoming election. We ought to care more, but worry less than anyone. What will truly mark out Christians as distinct is if we care more, but we worry less. We care more. We care about the election. We we, we care more. And the reason why we care is because we care about people. Right? I mean, that's at the heart of who Jesus is. Jesus cares about people. And so, so we as Christians care about people. And so, so when we go to vote, we, we want to vote because why? Because we understand that, 
that the example that our leaders set, the, the policies that, that they pass, all of this, it affects people. And so if we care about people, we need to care about the election. This, this is why voter apathy is a very unchristian kind of person. If somebody's like, oh, I don't really care about the election. I, I don't really care. I don't really care, you know. I, uh, I, and maybe they say something, I don't really care because it's not, it's not really going to affect me. It's not, it's not really, it doesn't really matter to me. It's not really going to affect me. Well, first of all, I, I would suggest that I think that's a little bit naive. That the, again, the example that our leaders set and the policies um, they, that they pass, that they definitely affect people in, in ways that you may not understand. But, but even, let us just assume for a moment that somehow you find yourself in this unique position of being somebody where it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who's in office because it's not really going to affect you. Um, here's what we need to realize as Christians. It's never just about us. It's about others. In everything that we do as Christians, it's never about me. It's never just about me and what's good for me and what's going to work for me. I mean, that's never the perspective that a Christian takes. A Christian, a Christian as, as Jesus says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. So you, you, see, you see, for Christians, it's, it's, it's never, in everything that we do, it's never just about what's right for me and anything that we do, even in our voting. I, I hope that when you vote, you're not just voting for what you think is best for you. When you vote, I, I hope you're not just voting for whatever you think is best for you. Some people think that that's, that's how we should vote, but I'm not sure that Jesus would agree with that. Because Jesus, everything that he did was about other people. So, so whenever, you go in, whenever we go in to vote, we can't just be thinking about ourselves. We've got to be thinking about, well, our neighbor. We've got to be thinking about our, our neighbor next door, our neighbor across the street, our neighbor in the next town over, our neighbor in the next state over, our neighbor in this country over. I mean, we've got to be thinking about other people. It's not just about us. Now, you know, of course, we can bring in here the illustration of when you're on an airplane and, and, and the cabin pressure goes down and the oxygen masks come down here. You know, well, you know, even if you want to save everybody else, you've got to get oxygen on yourself first, right? Okay, that, that's fine. Let's, let's find a way to work that into our, our understanding. But remember, the ultimate goal is always that we're, we're looking to help others. When you go in to vote, I hope that when you go in to vote, that you are voting in a way that you think is best for others. Now, let me just say this, because this might be the Hopefully the only slightly controversial thing that I'm going to say to you. It's going to be brief. When you go in to vote, so just, just bear with me. Just hold yourself if you can. Just hold yourself. Just hold on tight. And then you can send me nasty emails later or something. Okay? When we go in to vote, we should vote in a way that we believe is, is best for others. Now here's the controversial point I want to suggest to you. Best is complex. Best is complex. It's not really necessarily simple all the time. What is going to be best here? What's going to be best with this situation? What's going to be best in this scenario? Best is complex. There's a lot of factors, a lot of, a lot of different perspectives and, and approaches and a lot of different ways in which you can see this. And 
And so let me just put it this way. My grandmother, wonderful woman, loved Jesus, church organist for 40 years. She lived for 30 years at the end of her life. She lived with with her dad, just the way circumstances worked out. She lived with her dad, my great-grandfather, Daddy Oz. And Daddy Oz, also just a wonderful man. I mean, just exuded the fruit of the Spirit. Wonderful Christian man. I remember one time he, his, his hand got shut in the door of the car. And he very, he very just calmly said, um, could, could somebody come help me here? He, he didn't want to inconvenience anybody. Even though his hand got stuck in the door. I mean, this was a man who, who never wanted to be a burden on it. He loved he loved people, loved everybody. He was, he, he was a wonderful Christian man. They, they weren't perfect. Don't get me wrong. There's all kinds of dysfunction in my family. Please, don't misunderstand me. But these were good people who loved Jesus. Now, here's the irony of it. For 30 years, they would get in the car together, and they would laugh. They'd, they'd laugh about this. For 30 years, they would get in the car on election day, and they would go there, and they would cancel each other's vote out. For 30 years. Why? Because best is complex. Best is complex. And and what I would suggest to you is that if you don't think best is complex, you may not be bringing a full biblical theology to your politics. And what this means is that, you see, I think what this means is that as Christians, let me put it a different way. I was going to say this at the end, but I'm going to say it now and then maybe I'll say it again at the end. No matter who you vote for this year, there are going to be people who vote the same way as you and do not share hardly any of your values, no matter which direction you go. So, you see, when we vote, no matter which way we vote, that is not going to mark us out as distinct as Christians. But what can mark us out as distinct is if if when we vote... We care more and we worry less because we know that our ultimate leader is already in office. You see, that's what can mark us out as distinct. So, you see, we need to care more. So whatever, wherever you feel led, as you pursue this and you investigate this and you really seek the Lord out and you really seek this out, you you vote in the way that you feel God is leading you that is, is best. That's what we're called to do because we care. We care about people. So we should care more, but we should worry less. Because here's what we need to remember. No matter who becomes our next president, you see, God's kingdom will advance no matter who is elected president. God's kingdom is not hindered by who is in office. Now, God, again, of course, he can use, he can use policies and whatnot and He can use that to advance his kingdom, but he will advance his kingdom in spite of whatever takes place. If we really believe that Jesus is our ultimate Lord, we will care, but we won't worry. Because Jesus is in control even when things seem completely out of control. That's the very heart of the gospel, you see. That's not even tangential. That's the heart of the gospel. God is in control, 
even when things seem completely out of control. And actually, this is why it's this understanding of the sovereignty of God um, in the light of, of things that seem out of control that enable the Apostle Paul and the disciple Peter to say some really profound things. Here's what they do, and I'm just going to read a couple of things to you. And, and here, they, they, actually, they actually encourage um, their, the Christians in their communities to respect and honor their leaders. This is really quite remarkable. Let me just read it to you here. This is in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 13. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. And then, famous verse, Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. And, and then, in, in Romans, Paul says, I think I marked it here, yeah. In, in Romans, he says uh, something very similar here. Yeah, here we go, Romans 13. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And then again, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Now, this is so remarkable. Do you know why this is so remarkable? That he's encouraging the Christians to show honor and respect to their governing authorities? Because these are the same authorities who crucified Jesus. These are the, this is the same system. The same Roman Empire. Not a lot of difference. Actually, probably just got worse by this time. And, and they're, they're actually saying that you can honor and you can... You can sub- submit to them. Now, now, admittedly, and this is, not, this is another whole sermon, it, 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 their submission wasn't absolute uh, because they were persecuted. If, if they wouldn't be persecuted if their submission was absolute. So obviously there's a place there, but still nonetheless, isn't it remarkable that Peter and Paul would be willing to say things like you can honor and respect them? And why, why are they saying this? This is what's so profound is that they are saying that the very system, the very people who crucified Jesus, God appointed that. That's how in control God is. You see, why would we worry? I mean, we should care. We should care more than anybody. but we should worry less. Friends, when we go in, when we go in to vote this year, and and I I hope that you do, when we go in to vote, we need to to remember that no matter what happens, God's kingdom is going to advance. You You see, no matter what anybody does, no matter where things go, God's kingdom will advance. You see, they, they crucified Jesus. You see, they killed Jesus. They killed the leader of our kingdom. And, and you know what happens when the kingdom of God gets killed? It just rises again. So, friends, when we go in to vote on Tuesday, what's going to mark us out as distinct It's not so much which way we vote. What's going to mark us out as distinct is if we're able to care more but worry less because we know that our ultimate leader is already in office. 
Friends, at the end of the day, remember this. At the end of the day, our slogan is not, make America great again, for I'm with her. Our slogan is, Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning. clinging to the very heart of the gospel. And Lord, that is that we have nothing to fear. Lord, we live in a, a world, we live in a country where, where a lot of people are anxious. We disagree on just about everything except the fact that we're all anxious. God, I pray that this election season would truly mark us out. Is that we care? Well, Lord, we're not worried. God, may our anxieties and our worries be turned to prayer and thanksgiving. May we turn to you. May we once again rest in our first love. Lord, we get pulled away by so many things, by many good things, and those things become to us, almost idols. God, may we be drawn back to the heart of who you are, and may we rest in your sovereignty and in your grace alone. Pray all this in Jesus' name.